The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. And we are currently going through 1 Corinthians, the whole book, the way Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago to a church that he planted there in the city of Corinth, very similar maybe in a lot of ways to San Francisco or some big cities that we have here in America, very secular, very pagan very lacking a Christian worldview or worldview that is driven and understood by Scripture. And yet Paul went into that city because God commissioned him to do so. He preached the simple gospel and had a wonderful response because people got saved and he was able to establish a church. He pastored that church for about a year and a half. Then he left, went to plant other churches. was able to go back uh a couple of times and corresponded with the church. It was a young church, young and immature, growing, learning, unsophisticated when it came to understanding and having been raised in Old Testament scripture. So a lot of things were very new in terms of their worldview and how this Christianity thing worked. So Paul had to correspond with them either through messengers, also through some letters that he wrote. And First Corinthians is one of those. And as a young church with filled with also sinful people, they had their struggles, and also Satan was on the attack, and the prowl to stir up things, create division like he always does towards the church of God. And so after Paul left Corinth, after pastoring for a year and a half, he got wind that there were some problems that needed immediate attention. Uh, there was some division going on and confusion and some bad theology. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians 16 chapters in our English Bible to address and try to solve a lot of these problems and also educate them in a biblical worldview. So there are a few key problems that Paul had to tend to. One was a, a divisive spirit that they had. They were cliquish. Another major problem the Corinthians had was they were immature, spiritually immature, and therefore self-centered and carnal. Uh, another major problem they had was ignorance in that they were not theologically astute in a lot of areas. So Paul had to reestablish some doctrinal issues for them. And one of those areas where that was all combined and became a problem from a lack of understanding and doctrine and also a lack of maturity was how they used their spiritual gifts in the church publicly when they met. And so you got a big chunk of scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's where we're at. And today we're in 1 Corinthians 14. We're nearing Paul's uh, wrap-up discussion on this issue where he's exhorting the Corinthian Christians uh, about their misuse of spiritual gifts. That's what we've been talking about. They've been misusing and even misunderstanding their spiritual gifts. Apparently, from what we learn in chapter 12, 13, and 14, it's a unit that goes together. It's like one thematic discussion. One of the biggest problems they had in misusing their gifts is they selfishly sought the showy gifts, the up front gifts, or maybe the spectacular gifts, and the main one being speaking in tongues, which was a legitimate spiritual gift of a miraculous nature. It was the ability to speak in a foreign language without being taught and to be able to do it spontaneously as you shared truths about God with other people, and it needed to be translated so that people could understand it because it was a foreign language. And it was a pretty amazing thing. It was pretty cool. Uh, having this gift, and so apparently a lot of the Corinthians had this gift. They used this gift. They used it in the public assembly. They used it the wrong way. They were using it selfishly to show off how spiritual they were. They looked down their nose on other people that didn't have the showy gifts. Maybe people using their gifts behind the scenes that you didn't even recognize. Who knows? But they just had a, a very immature, wrong, selfish attitude. Their goal was not to use their gift to edify, encourage, and build other people up. And it's really basic. When we come together as a church body, two main goals. One is to worship God Almighty. And number two is to edify and encourage other believers. That's the main goal of church. And Paul makes that clear. Hebrews makes that clear. They weren't doing that. They were there showing off, edifying themselves. And so that's kind of the emphasis of Paul's discussion. Last time we were together, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 19, and we pulled off a miracle. We actually got through all 19 verses, but we had to keep them together to preserve the continuity of the argument and the problem at hand. 
And so just by way of review, the main thing Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 19, is Paul wanted to make two main points. He wanted to tell the Corinthians, your priorities are wrong. The Corinthians were basically saying that tongues is the most important gift. And Paul says, no, you're wrong. Prophecy is actually one of the more important gifts. And prophecy is a more important or a better gift, he calls it, than the gift of tongues. So as a church, you should be aspiring for and promoting the gift of prophecy, if it's available, over and above tongues. They had the wrong priority. And the other major issue uh, that he dealt with in verses 1 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 14 was Paul said, if you do have tongues going on in your church, it is legitimate, because I know there's a lot of so-called tongues going on in your church, but if it's going on, it needs to be interpreted. You can't just do tongues and leave it left untranslated or uninterpreted. So those were his two main points. Prophecy is greater than tongues, and if you do tongues, it needs to be translated in the public assembly among the church. So now he's going to transition, starting at verse 20, after making those two points. And we're going to look at verses 20 down to verse 33, because again, it's a unit that goes together. It can't be separated. And so he's going to talk again with a little different point of emphasis on speaking in tongues and prophecy. Um, and so if you, if you got your hand out there, I provided just a real basic outline. It's Paul's outline. And the first, from verses 20 to 25, his point of emphasis there about speaking in tongues really is he wants to reemphasize the purpose of speaking in tongues. They, they were misguided or they forgot the purpose of speaking in tongues. And then in verses 26 to 20, or 33, the second thing he wants to highlight is the proper procedure for using tongues in the public assembly if indeed there is a legitimate gift of tongues present. So it's the purpose of tongues and then the process or procedure of how to do tongues in a way that honors God in the public assembly at church. It is important to be reminded, and as you look at your Bible there, uh, as we'll start looking at verses 20 to 33, the context is the public worship service. This is not talking about uh, you by yourself, all alone, or you home alone with your family, or you by yourself in a closet somewhere of these things going on. This is in the public assembly, which we would call church, because that is what Paul said. That's the last thing he said in verse 19, if you got your Bible there. Uh, he concludes with the summary statement, however, in the church, however, in the public assembly, when you gather together. Uh, so this is in a church context. Uh, as a matter of fact, he even says, uh, going on after verse 19, talking about this is in the public assembly at church. Uh, he says, when you gather together, verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, when you do church, when you go to church with the body of Christ, corporately. So that is the context. Verse 33 reiterates it again. The churches of the saints, verse 34, in the church. So just want to make that clear. This is how you conduct yourselves appropriately with respect to spiritual gifts and tongues in particular in the public assembly or corporate assembly of the church. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at these two points. As I said, the first point is verses 20 to 25, and that is just simply the purpose of tongues, which is, Paul says very clearly, it is a sign for unbelievers. That's in your outline there. What is the purpose of tongues? It's a sign for unbelievers. I was on vacation um, last week, had a great time, was refreshed, uh, praying for our church while we were gone and had good reports that God bless things went well. Thank you to JR for preaching and bringing the word and others who filled in the gaps. Uh, although I was on vacation, I did have opportunity to deliberately do some reading I wanted to do. And I actually spent time reading uh, probably one of the most respected systematic theologians and scholars um, in the charismatic world, charismatic Christian world. So that was a delightful, interesting read that I did. And I also read one of the most respected uh, scholars and theologians in the Assemblies of God Pentecostal uh, denomination this week on uh, speaking in tongues and baptism in the Spirit because I wanted a very fresh perspective from their camp and how they understand Scripture, those who have a different view of tongues than I would or than we would. So it was good to hear what they had to say, and um, it was helpful. It gave context to what I, some of the things I wanted to highlight in the Scripture here. The thing that I did notice was clearly two things 
the charismatic scholar and the Pentecostal scholar had a different understanding of what we believe it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, to be filled with the Spirit, I mean, I think it just means to be obedient to God in accordance with Scripture as we're energized by the Spirit of God, being obedient. Uh, the charismatic and Pentecostal scholar said over and over and over again that being filled with the Spirit is speaking with tongues, or it doesn't go without speaking in tongues, or it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. So that is a huge point of difference. And as they were explaining their views, they didn't go into an exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which I thought was pretty significant, because 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the most comprehensive explanation of the meaning, the purpose of tongues, why God gave it. So it can't be neglected in our survey of understanding tongues. And there is much confusion. And so there was in the day of the Corinthians, they were confused about tongues, the very purpose that needs to be reestablished. Uh, there's much confusion in the church abroad, in the evangelical church, about spiritual gifts, and particularly tongues. And as a result, many times it does become divisive among believers, Christians. I remember when I became a Christian in college, brand new Christian, didn't know anything, just came to believe in the Bible and Jesus, and then I started reading the Bible, studying that I just, I wanted more and more of the Word of God in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, I believe it. And I had, I was at kind of an ecumenical Christian college. This was before I went to the master's college, and I was at another college where uh, there was a broad spectrum of kinds of Christians. And so I had several good friends who were Christians, but came from different backgrounds. And so I had some Christian friends who, I didn't know this at the time, but they were charismatic or Pentecostal. And then I had other uh, friends who were cessationists, whatever that means, and uh, non-charismatic uh, evangelicals and reformed and those kind of things. And I didn't know or understand any of those implications. But as soon as I got saved... Uh, they came towards me and they wanted to disciple me and they were so excited and wanted to teach me the Bible. And it, when it got to spiritual gifts and tongues, it was kind of, I was stuck in the middle of a, 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 not a civil war, but kind of a tug of war. I got the reform. They're pulling on my arm over here wanting to show me why tongues is wrong. And then, and then my charismatic uh, roommates, uh, Christians, they're pulling over here showing me from Bible, the Bible where tongues, it's actually in the Bible. It's a legitimate gift and you need to have it and you need to do it. And so I was that, especially that first year that I was saved, I was being tugged back and forth. And as a result, I was thoroughly confused because I like him and I like him and they are my friends and we are, can't we just love Jesus? That was my attitude. And, but it was a significant issue. Little did I know that was a microcosm of what was going on in macro in the Christian world and had been for decades. Uh, and even more than that now. So, uh, but Scripture speaks to this issue. There is an answer. And I think 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is very significant and really answers a lot of these questions. Some of these questions are answered, I think, very clearly. There's no question. Uh, and we've been addressing those along the way. So, And one of those questions that needs to be addressed and needs to be the beginning of the discussion is if you're interacting with another believer of a different persuasion who has a different view of tongues and gifts than you do, especially tongues, one of the basic questions is you need to ask them and you need to be able to answer is, what is the purpose of tongues? Well, Paul answers that question right here, 20 to 25. When I was reading the charismatic scholar and the Pentecostal scholar, who are both believers, by the way, born again, regenerate Christians, whom I will see and fellowship with in heaven. Uh, one of them is already there in heaven. Um, they did. One of them didn't even address the purpose of tongues at all. And the other one gave the purpose of tongues that was the exact opposite of what I think Paul says it is here in Scripture. Um, so that's why this is so important. What is the purpose of tongues? Uh, and on your handout there I put, it is a sign for unbelievers. Let's go ahead and look at it and look at these first five, six verses Paul gives us. Uh, starting at verse 20, brethren. Now, brethren. Now, that uh, is an affectionate pastoral term from the Apostle Paul. It's not just pastoral. It's actually, he puts himself on the same level as them. I'm a believer in Jesus just as you are. Uh, it's an affectionate term. It's a term of endearment. Uh, he does this throughout chapter 14. He did it in verse 6. Brethren. It means brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellow, fellow believer. Friends. Fellow friends who believe in Jesus along with me. So it's a term of affection for Paul. He says it in verse 6 of chapter 14. He says it again in verse 20. It's important uh, to understand this. He says it in verse 26, and then he says it in verse 39. And every time he does, it's followed by either a mild or more than a mild rebuke. So it's a, kind of a balance to his exhortation. He doesn't want to totally ostracize him by 
totally insulting them. He wants them to know that he's bringing a rebuke or exhortation or correction out of a heart of love as a fellow believer and as their pastor and as an apostle. And so he calls them brethren. And that's just a a great thing to to, to remember that we need to talk to each other when we have disagreements with these affectionate and endearing terms, letting them know, no, I love you. We're one in the Lord. Uh, we disagree here. We don't see eye to eye, but we got to work this thing out. And we got to maybe arm wrestle over it too. Iron sharpens iron, says the Old Testament. But sometimes when iron sharpens iron, sparks fly, don't they? And that happens on occasion. So Paul tempers this rebuke each time by saying, Brother, brothers and sisters, are, are you still with me? I, I care for you. I love you. You need to be, but you need to hear the truth. You need to amend and correct your thinking and also your behavior. And so that's how he starts out. Brethren, um, and in this transition, he says, do not be children uh, in your thinking. Yet in evil or malice or in wickedness, literally, be infants. Now, he uses two different words here referring to young ones. First, he says, don't be children in your thinking. Don't be immature in your thinking. Really, what he's saying is you're being immature in your thinking. You're being like a child in your thinking. And you're being like a child in an immature, not good way. What are children? When you say someone is childish in a negative way, what do you mean? First and foremost, you mean that they are self-centered. The world evolves around a child. That's all there is to it. Me, me, me. That is immaturity. And that's what he's saying. Quit being immature in your thinking about these things. You're totally being self-centered. You're not thinking first and foremost about God and his glory and order in the worship service and also about edifying and building up others. It's all about you. Stop doing that. Especially when you come together as a church body. Quit being immature. He uses the word children, paideia, immaturity. And then and he says, in contrast to being immature in your thinking, being self-centered, selfish. Oh, another thing about children, immature children, they're fascinated by uh, sometimes the shallow and superficial, aren't they? And that which that which glitters. Oh, that's cool. Or whatever it is. They have fascination with that kind of a thing that can be very superficial and shallow and no depth whatsoever, no substance, but it's cool. Oh, that cotton candy, it's three different colors. I want it. Can I have a bunch of it? Yeah, and it'll make you sick. That's how children are. And so that's what he's saying. You are immature in your thinking about spiritual gifts because you're self-centered. You're immature like children because uh, you're pursuing tongues, which is the showy gift. How shallow of a motive is that? That's exactly what he's saying. Stop thinking that way. And remember, your behavior always follows your thinking. If you want to change somebody's behavior or your own behavior, you first need to start with your thought life. Always. So reprogram your thinking. Uh, and and with, with respect to being young, he says, yet in evil or malice. This is a word he used earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, where he point blank said, you're being evil towards one another. You have malice towards one another. And you're acting it out by actually suing each other in a pagan court. That is horrible. That is evil. That's villainous. That is wicked. And he says, by way of reminder, speaking of young ones, in evil be infantile. He uses a different word here than he did at the beginning of the verse. Be like a little baby. Be, and here he's referring to that which is naive or really innocent. Be innocent in the ways of evil and wicked things. Have nothing to do with it. Be unlearned in that area. Be unexperienced in that area. Be kind and loving towards one another. Stop being evil towards one another. But rather in your thinking, again, the key is your thinking. You want to change your behavior, change your thinking, be mature. This is interesting. The New American Standard translates telos, teleos in verse 20 as mature in chapter 14, verse 20. But in chapter 13, verse 10, the NAS translated the same word as perfect. When the perfect comes, and I was recommending that we translate uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 10 as mature because of the analogy he's comparing immaturity versus maturity. It's the exact same word. The two exact same words uh, being compared side by side here. So it's maturity. Be mature in your thinking. That's where it's going to stop. And if you don't pursue maturity in your thinking as Christians and have a desire to deliberately continue to grow in God's word, then everything I'm about to say all the way up to verse 33 is just going to fall on deaf ears and won't do anything. It won't do any good. So you've got to cooperate with the spirit of God and the exhortations that I'm giving, says the Apostle Paul. So then he goes on, verses 21 to 25, and he says, "How well, how can we change our thinking? If we are commanded by God to be mature in our thinking, there's only one way. It's not by having willpower. 
it's not by secular education or the wisdom of men. It only comes from the word of God. And that is exactly what Paul says in verse 21. So look, he says, be mature in your thinking, godly in your thinking, innocent in your thinking. And then his example is, look at the, the law or the Old Testament, for example, he says in verse 21. So Paul is referring actually to the book of Isaiah. He calls the book of Isaiah the law because the Jews considered the entire Old Testament the law of God. God gave Moses the law, and then the prophets came along, and they talked about how to apply the law. And so many times the entire Old Testament is referred to as the law. And so that's the case here. Paul is referring, look at the Old Testament. I'm telling you to grow and change in your thinking, be mature in your thinking. Think like the Old Testament, the Word of God. Look to it. It has wisdom for us to change our thinking. And it even makes reference, and here Paul is using an analogy out of Isaiah 28, or as an example, it's not a fulfilled prophecy. He's just saying, by way of example. Our problem here is speaking in tongues. People are confused and divided in the church. People aren't listening. I already diagnosed the problem that you're speaking in the gift of tongues, but you're not translating and interpreting, and so nobody even understands it because they don't understand the language you're speaking in, so it is totally ineffective. So also, in the book of Isaiah chapter 28... God used foreigners to speak a foreign language to his disobedient, hard-hearted people, the Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel, just prior to 700 B.C. in the days of Isaiah, where God said, you know what? Since you Jews aren't listening to me, your God, Yahweh, and you're being disobedient, and you're compromising on the law of God, and I gave you plenty of time, and I was patient with you, and you've hardened your heart towards me, and you stiffened your neck, that's it. I'm going to bring another testimony in here to rebuke you, and it's going to be a language you don't even understand. And he was referring to the Assyrians who would come in literally into the northern kingdom and uh, just utterly destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was trodden underfoot by the Assyrians, and they spoke a different language than the Jews. Many times when the Jews heard that Assyrian-Akkadian kind of a language, it just sounded like mumbo-jumbo if it was untranslated. They didn't get it. And yet God was speaking through the pagan Assyrians a message that the Israelites couldn't understand or apply because it wasn't translated and also because they hardened their hearts and didn't believe. And so that's all he's referring to here. For uh, As in the law in Isaiah 28, uh, God said, by men of strange, and this is through Isaiah the prophet is speaking to his people of the day in 700 B.C., the Jews. By men of strange tongues, that's the Assyrians and Sennacherib, and by the lips of the strangers, I, God, will speak to this people, the Jews, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So he's using an Old Testament analogy regarding foreign languages and how God can use foreign languages to either bless or condemn or bring in as a sign of judgment, especially if it is not translated. That's all he's saying. Tongues needs to be translated and also needs to be spoken to the right audience for it to be effective. So verse 22, and here's his point from referring to Isaiah 28. So here's my point then. Tongues are for a sign. A sign. Same aeon. It's the same Greek word used by John in his gospel exclusively every time speaking of an amazing miracle of Jesus. There was like seven or so, uh, six or seven major signs or miracles that John's gospel recounts to validate and to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So a sign in John's gospel was a, a miracle to validate the ministry of Jesus, to validate that he was the Messiah, that he was a prophet of God, that he was uh, sent from God as the messenger. And so the first time Jesus did a miracle and turned water into wine, John calls it a sign. This is a sign that validated the ministry of Jesus as a messenger of God. So a sign in John's gospel is always this a miracle that takes place to validate Jesus' ministry. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says that the credentials of an apostle or the signs, it's the same word, the signs of an apostle. And then it gives three words, uh, wonders, miracles, and mighty deeds, or signs, miracles, and mighty deeds. Those were the credentials of an apostle because there were false apostles. There were false prophets all over the place. And so God gave his legitimate apostles and prophets credentials as they spoke divine revelation to validate what they said was true and some of the main credentials they had were the ability to do signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And Paul is here saying that, do you not understand that tongues is a sign? It is a miraculous, extraordinary, 
gift put on display to validate the messenger that they speak a true message of God? That's what tongues is. It's a sign to validate a message. And so he says, so the tongues are for a sign, and it's not even a sign for fellow believers. And here, the Corinthians, one of the problems was the Corinthians were speaking tongues in church to a bunch of believers. And Paul's saying that isn't even the purpose of tongues. It is a sign of a miraculous nature to put on display to unbelievers. As you speak the mighty deeds of God through a language you didn't learn, you didn't even know that you spontaneously were given by God to your audience so they could hear the great works of God and maybe even the gospel and be saved as a result and the tongues of that miraculous nature would be known by the unbeliever that, wow, this this Jew, this Galilean Jew, how does he know uh, ancient Egyptian cuneiform? He's a foreigner. He shouldn't know that language, yet he speaks it perfectly with all the perfect accents. accents and the amazing. So that was validating in the listener that, wow, it, that God did that. And that was validating and confirming for the message that this man was a man of God. And that was the purpose of tongues. So it, tongues did have primarily an evangelistic nature to it. It wasn't for believers, it was for unbelievers. And that's where I was telling you that uh, the Pentecostal scholar was saying just the opposite. Tongues, he said, point blank, um, ev- tongues is not for a tool of evangelism. When Paul says, no, it is. It is a sign for unbelievers. And that is exactly, if you go back and read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where the 120 believers spoke the mighty deeds of God, and they spoke it in foreign languages. They spoke in tongues, those 15 or so different foreign languages. And when they were done preaching, the people who heard were convicted and pierced to the heart and said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and believe, and they got saved. So the unbelievers who heard the gospel and the mighty deeds of God spoken through the gift of tongues heard God's truth, and they responded and were saved as a result. It was an evangelistic tool. There's a perfect example of how it was used, and that's what well, that's all Paul is saying. Don't be speaking in tongues in the church with a bunch of believers. It is needless. You don't need to do that. That's not its purpose. So then tongues are first sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. There it is. That's where speaking in tongues should be used with. It is towards unbelievers. It's not for yourself. Remember that? To edify yourself. Spiritual gifts weren't given to edify ourselves. It's to edify others. And in this case, tongues is very specifically oriented to unbelievers. Now, look carefully in your Bible, verse 22. Depending upon your English translation, you need to take note. And if you're like me, old school, in a like a paper Bible, uh, I like to write in my Bible. I actually scratched out the following words. And you don't need to have a guilty conscience to do so if you wanted to. But in verse 22, So then tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy... Not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, in my New American Standard, it says, but prophecy is for a sign. Well, the problem is the Greek text doesn't say is for a sign. Prophecy is not a sign. Very important. That's very misleading. So I just crossed it out. Prophecy is not. Tongues is a sign. Prophecy is not a sign. Uh, Tongues is the sign or the validation of the revelation being given. Prophecy is the revelation being given. And prophecy need to be validated with a sign, just like an apostle need to be validated with a sign. Uh, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds, those were signs. Miracles. They were miraculous. They, they were signposts. They pointed a sign gift or a sign, a miracle, a healing, something that was instantaneous, miraculous, and you could see it, and it was empirical, and it was observable. That was a sign that pointed to validate the truth of God's revelation. Prophecy was just simply revelation. It was not a sign. And when there was divine revelation being given that came directly from God before they had the full New Testament with the apostles and prophets, God needed to validate the apostles and prophets, and he did so by giving them the credentials of different signs to do miracles, to do healings, to do these amazing sign gifts like speaking in tongues to validate their message. So tongues uh, is a sign. Prophecy is not a sign. It shouldn't say that. It's very misleading. Uh, prophecy is just kind of self-evident in terms of the content being taught. Um, But prophecy is not a sign, and it's not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So prophecy, first and foremost, is for believers. And that's what Paul's saying. And that's why you should pursue prophecy over tongues in the local congregation with your church. Divine revelation that the body needs, that believers need. This is the equivalent of teaching. 
Uh, it's the same on the same level. We teach the saints so they can grow and be edified and learn and encouraged and feed on the Word of God. The same thing with prophecy, direct revelation. It was to be given to the saints so that they could learn and grow and be fed on the truth of God's Word. And that needs to be priority and paramount in the local church when the church gathers. Prophecy. So there's a huge difference there. So tongues is a sign. Prophecy is not a sign. Uh, tongues is for unbelievers. Prophecy is uh, primarily for the saints. Also, tongues was a form of judgment on unbelievers who refused to believe in God, whereas prophecy was not primarily judgment. It could be, but it wasn't primarily so. It was for edification and blessing and encouragement, Paul said earlier in chapter 14, to encourage believers, not judgment. So they are very two very different gifts and two very different audiences. And so basically Paul's saying... Uh, you shouldn't be speaking tongues primarily in the church, and especially if it's untranslated. That is so wrong. So he goes on, verse uh, 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together... Okay, so now he's being theoretical, or it's theoretical based on reality. So you guys are getting together on the Lord's Day and gathering in people's homes and huge groups of you. And therefore, if the whole uh, church gathers or assembles together and all speak in tongues, and uh, everybody's just speaking. And one of the problems apparent from the text was a lot of people were speaking in tongues. Too many people were speaking in tongues. And another problem was that a lot of these people were speaking tongues all at the same time. Now, you can do that in music or an opera where four different people are singing four different things, and it sounds like harmony in music. Uh, not with tongues. If you've got four or five people speaking tongues all at the same time, it's not being translated. It's just mumble. It is noise. It is dissonance. It doesn't communicate any truth whatsoever. It's edifying no one. As a matter of fact, it's becoming embarrassing. It's chaos. It is disorderly. It's inappropriate. It is confusing. And that's his point. Because the last verse of this chapter, he says, you know what? Just do all things properly and, and, and decently and in proper order. Because that's the way God would have it. So they got people uh, speaking in tongues at the same time, out loud, confusing everybody. Like five different dogs barking at the same time in the back alley. Nobody likes that. Therefore, the whole assembly together, you're coming together, everybody's speaking in tongues. And So say you're all gathering together and then 17 people are just blabbing and speaking tongues all at the same time. Nobody's translating. You're going on and on and on. And what if, uh, verse 23, there are ungifted men and unbelievers enter? Un New American Standard says ungifted men. That is not the best translation. It's a very difficult word to translate. Uh, literally, it's men unto themselves, those who are unto themselves. Uh, one Greek scholar translated it as house folk. They, they are unbelievers. They're a subcategory of unbelievers. They're in a church home. Maybe this uh, church is being hosted by somebody who has a big house. And there's 50 people there. And maybe it's... Uh, the lady of the home, and she's a believer. And her husband maybe is not a Christian, or it could be vice versa. And so you got all these believers there on the Lord's Day at Sunday. And so a family, or it could be one of the kids or an uncle who lives in the house, or grandma. And they're having this church service, and yet there are family members who live in that house. And they're either across the way in a hall or whatever, and they're seeing all this, well, those crazy fundamentalist weird Christians, all that kooky stuff they do. you got unbelievers there. That's this word here where it says ungifted, unlearned, a lot of different translations, house folk. So if they're, but they're unbelievers. Another translation was newcomers. Uh, actually, it's the emphasis is on the fact they are not Christians. So you've got unbelievers there. Categorically, you've got people who are sitting there who don't know Christ, and then you also have these other people who are there, maybe family members who don't know Christ, and they're seeing all of you speak in tongues, uh, all of you at the same time, nobody's translating, and they're looking on thinking, this is weird, this is crazy, these these Christians are kooks. I want nothing to do with them. This is wild. What in the world have they been drinking? That's what they said in Acts chapter 2, remember that? Accused the apostles of being drunk. And that's what happens, uh, because of the confusion that was going on, it wasn't being translated, and so it's a horrible testimony. That's why he says, uh, will they not say you are mad? You're being a lousy testimony to these unbelievers who need to hear intelligible, defined, translated, clear truth, not babble and mumbo-jumbo. And so he goes on, verse 24, but if all prophesy, that's speaking direct revelation in intelligible language that everybody can understand, that is preferred, 
But if all prophesy when you gather together and there are unbelievers there, uh, house folk or um, just unbelievers, and they happen to be there present at the church service, and they're hearing the direct revelation of the word of God being given through the content of the gospel and the message about Jesus Christ, which always talks about sin, right? Sin. We are sinful. We are fallen. We are wicked. We deserve God's wrath. We can't help ourselves. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. Only God can do that. He is a holy God. He must punish sin. That's what they should be hearing in the assembly. And as believers even, we need to be reminded of that, of what we have been saved from and our call to ongoing holiness before a holy God. And and pleading with Him for ongoing forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. That's the message the unbeliever needs to hear about their sin. It's interesting, in Paul's day they had many pagan religions. These pagan religions, they did not talk about sin. That was not in their vocabulary. I don't care what the pagan religion was. Man was good. At worst, he was neutral. They didn't talk about sin. And you could pile on all these religions, but you never talked about sin. This was the distinctive of biblical Christianity, a proper diagnosis from God about the sinfulness of humanity. And every human being is sinful. Every human being is separated from God. Every human being is culpable for their own sin before a holy God as judge, and they need to repent or they face judgment. That's what they needed to hear in the assembly. They could not hear that message through tongues that went untranslated, but they could through prophecy. If it was truly given from God, that's his point in verse 24. But if all uh, are prophes- all, all who are gifted with prophecy in the assembly are prophesying, and then there's unbelievers there, it's amazing what can happen. Uh, potentially, and very realistically, he can be convicted by the message he hears from the prophets. He will hear about sin, he'll hear the good news, he'll hear about Christ, he will be convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, in verse 24, the word convicted is the exact same verb used in John 16, 8, where Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit to convict the world, to convict unbelievers of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And that is deliberate on Paul's part. They're going to hear the truth of the Word of God. The the Word of God is living and active, piercing to the very conscience and the soul of a sinner. And then the Holy Spirit in tandem is doing His ministry of taking that Word and driving it home on the conscience, wooing the sinner to repentance. Deep in their soul, this is how God works. This is how His truth works. This is how prophecy works. And so the unbeliever is overcome by this truth that he's hearing as he's pierced to the soul regarding his sin. He is convicted. He's called to account by all. In other words, those that he's rubbing shoulders with at the church service and he feels convicted and he goes up to a Christian and says, man, I feel horrible and I feel guilty. You know, when people come and tell me that, I don't say, oh, that's too bad. You need to get rid of your guilt. Especially unbelievers. When they say, I feel guilty, I say, oh, that's good. You should feel guilty. Sinners need to feel guilty before a holy God. That's good. God is working. God's trying to tell you something. Notice that guilt. Respond to that guilt. Don't dismiss or marginalize or try to snuff out that guilt. So he's called to account by all. They're affirming the message of guilt regarding his sin. Then it goes on in verse 25, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. On the inner recesses of his heart, only God can go that deep. And through his conscience, he's searching his soul in light of truth that has pierced his soul. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's in desperate need. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God. There's repentance. There is salvation. There is regeneration. There's a recognition of a sin that he needs a Savior. It's a glorious thing. Declaring that God is certainly among you. It's amazing. That's how God's truth works. But that his whole point is unbelievers need to hear a clear, discernible, intelligible message, not mumbo-jumbo. So that is the purpose of tongues. It is for a sign for unbelievers and an evangelistic tool at that and also a tool of judgment. Okay, point number two, 26 to 33. This is pretty straightforward. Paul says, okay, now that we've established the purpose, which was really more difficult in terms of a concept, now he just says simply, here's how you proceed. If you have the gift of tongues and it's legitimate in your midst, then you need to do it properly and decently and in order because God is a God of order. And so he gives some protocol to how it's to be implemented because they were violating that. So verses 26 to 33, uh, the process of the procedure for tongues, only two or three at most, he says, and in proper order. 
Uh, and so he says, what is the outcome then, brothers and sisters, when you assemble, each one of you has a psalm. That's a song. So when you come together at church, some of you may be gifted at singing or maybe you even wrote a psalm or a psalm, and you, and you share that with the church. Uh, one of you will be teaching the word of God or doctrine. That's good. So here's the diversity of the corporate worship service. And that's why, why do we do what we do? Why do we have a song? Why do we have teaching? Why do we have, why do we have these diverse elements as we gather together? Well, it's, it's the precedent in scripture. And we get a little peek of that here in the Corinthian assembly, how they did church. Uh, there's those who are gifted with song. They have a song to share. Uh, there's teaching for those who are gifted in teaching. Uh, some might have a revelation in Paul's day, direct revelation as they didn't have the New Testament. Yet this refers to prophets. Not everybody was a prophet. Uh, someone might have a gift of speaking in tongues. And then if you were going to use that, then there needed to be an interpretation or translation of that tongue. So he's listing these people who are gifted in the church as they gather together. And Paul says, when you do uh, all, and you have all this going on, simple point, let all these things be done for edification, building up the body, not self-centered manner. He's repeated that over and over again. And that's what we need to be doing. 27, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three. Apparently the Corinthians had more than three. Maybe they had five, seven, 19, who knows? This is just totally out of control. Two. At the most, three, not four. If you got four, no. Church is over. Sit down. Time for the fellowship meal. God has a reason for that. He's very specific in his terminology, too. He says uh, two or at the most three. I think that's just practical. We can only handle so much information, right? And one given, it's like, okay, McManus is twelve thirty. It's time to go. I've, my head is full. It's leaking out my ears. I understand that. I think God does too. Two or three at the most, and 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 each in turn, literally by shares. In other words, a fair amount of time for each one. Don't be monopolizing the time. Don't be a time hog, the senator from Texas or wherever you are. Uh, it needs to be broken up fairly. And then one must translate, and that's an imperative. If you're going to speak in tongues in the congregation, it needs to be interpreted or translated is the better term. Uh, verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, then he must keep silent in the church. In other words, if there's no translation, then you aren't supposed to be speaking tongues, uh, languages in the church. How many times is that violated today? A lot. Um, keep silent in the church, and the one that has the gift of tongues, if it's real, but there's no translator there because he can't even translate it himself, he needs to just sit down and meditate, speak to himself and to God. That just means meditate. Meditate on the truth maybe that you uh, were thinking or those kind of things. Uh, but keep silent. And then he talks about the procedure for tongues, but he also talks about the procedure for prophets, which is similar, verse 29. So let two or three prophets speak, two or three, same thing. We don't need four and five. And uh, on vacation, by the way, somebody was telling me they were at a church. Oh, yeah, no, that was last week, yes. Uh, telling me that a friend of mine, pre he was a guest preacher at a church, and he preached a two-hour sermon on Good Friday. Two hours, wow, that's long. I don't feel so bad now. Um Keep silent, and then he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Verse 29, that's talking about those in the audience that have the gift of discernment that were mentioned in chapter 12, verse 10. Not the gift of discernment, but the, the gift of discrimination among, is this a false prophet or a true prophet? So they need to be discriminating. They need to judge. We need to vet out everything we hear that's passed off as spiritual truth. Not just say, oh, ho-hum, they're a nice person. They're, they're a nice Christian. They use Christian words. They've got their Bible open. We need to be a discerning, discriminating, judging, critical people when it comes to spiritual truth that is being passed off, especially publicly, whether it is spoken or whether it is in writing. And those with the gift of discriminating spirits need to be at the forefront of this in Paul's day as prophecy was being Given They had Paul, uh, prophets in that day. I would say that we don't. Verse 30, but if a revelation is made, a prophet speaks, and it's direct revelation to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So what he's saying there is somebody has a prophecy they want to give, and they got it in a dream the night before, and they come to church saying, oh, I got a prophecy from God last night, and here's what it is. And then if there's a spontaneous revelation that God is giving at that time, then the spontaneous revelation takes precedence. That guy stands up. This guy needs to sit down. And let the new, fresh prophet speak. That's what verse 30 means. And he must keep silent. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy. That is, those of you that have the gift of prophecy. And you do it one by one. Taking your turn. 
And if it's only two or three and we have seven prophets, then maybe next week you will have your turn in order so that all may learn, that's the whole congregation, and all may be exhorted or literally, literally encouraged from the word of God. Edified. Verse 32. And here's the summary point. It's like a proverb. There is no definite article. It's literally, verse 32 says, and spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, you can control your spiritual gift and you're accountable for controlling your spiritual gift, whether it is prophecy or speaking in tongues. I don't know if you've ever seen on YouTube or television or personal experience where somebody supposedly got a spiritual gift of ecstatic, unintelligible speech and they're flopping all over the place and they literally say, well, I couldn't control it because the spirit just took over. And it's, No, Paul says right here. The spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. What does that mean? You have self-control. You control your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift does not control you. You manage it. If you can be silent and you need to be silent, you need to turn it off and be silent. Very important principle. Again, that is violated today routinely. Well, why is that? Number one, because God ultimately is our main audience, and that's verse 33, how appropriate. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Peace. Not mass hysteria and confusion. He wants peace in the home. He wants peace in the heart. He wants peace in his body, the church. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul's making it clear, I'm an apostle. I'm not just the pastor of this, the former pastor of this church. I am still an apostle of Jesus Christ, who has jurisdiction over all the churches, as commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you isn't just binding for your local church. It's binding for all the churches. That's a very important principle because many who disagree with us say, oh, this was just a, a local thing that applied only to the Corinthians. No, it's right here, all the churches. As in all the churches of the saints, it is universal. It transcends localities. And, and so what that means for us is these principles that Paul laid down for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago in Corinth actually apply to us today. And by way of summary and conclusion, what might be some of these transcending principles that we can take away from this uh, discussion Paul had with Corinthians to us? Well, here they are. Uh, just practical applications from stuff we've been studying in 1 Corinthians 14 that we can apply today. Number one, be willing to talk to civilly with fellow believers or Christians who have a confused or even different view of you regarding speaking in tongues. That's what Paul is doing. He does not agree with their view of speaking in tongues, yet he is pastoral, he is kind, he is straightforward, he is loving, he gives them the benefit of the doubt and assumes they are true Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to do the same thing with other people who profess to know Christ and not just immediately question their salvation because they speak in tongues or believe in some weird kooky Pentecostal view. We need to, first and foremost, assume they're believers. They know Jesus, they love Jesus, they disagree, and maybe it's because of a lack of teaching or confused teaching or whatever. But we need to be civil in our interchange with them. I thank God somebody did that for me. I was lost in the clouds and in the fog. For two years I had a wrong view, I think, of spiritual gifts and especially speaking in tongues. And then some... Brothers in Christ had the courage to challenge me from God's word. Uh, which brings me to my next point. That everything you think and believe and do through scripture, it is the ultimate authority. That's probably, that's the starting point of the conversation. Do you agree as we disagree on this issue? Do you agree that the Bible is the ultimate authority and the standard by which we'll gauge all of our conversation? If they don't say yes, then you probably won't have much luck. Um, so vet everything through Scripture, submit to the Scripture. So once you study the Scripture, and you, you, Scripture is your authority, you study it, you vet all the issues through it, and then once you see, oh, this is what the Bible teaches, then you need to submit to that truth. This is hard. This is difficult for a lot of people, for Christians. This is difficult for all of us in certain areas. Where, oh, I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to do it. I've counseled people, who Christians who have done that. I know what the Bible says about... Uh, Matthew 5 and being reconciled with my brother or sister in Christ, but I ain't going to do it. I have people say that defiantly to my face. I'm like, wow, you're a Christian. You know what it says, and you are not willing to do it. I'm not willing to love my wife. You don't know my wife. I'm not willing to submit to my husband. You don't know my husband, but they're both believers. 
And same thing on speaking in tongues or different theological views. So we've got to be humble on this. Submit to Scripture. Make Scripture the priority over experience, emotion, or relationships. Those three seem to be the impediment many times that keep us from submitting to the truth of Scripture. Experience, emotions, or relationships. Number four, don't be self-centered at church when you come together. Be thinking two things. God, prepare my heart so that I will give you due worship. And God, prepare my heart so that I will be a servant to others. Number five, deliberately seek to keep growing an understanding of truth. Paul said that two times in this passage. Don't be immature. Don't be settled. Don't be content with where you are. Stay in static. Be aggressive. Be deliberate in your pursuing your understanding of the Word of God, which will help uh, your maturity as a Christian in your thinking. So be a Berean. Be a student of the Word of God always. That's how we grow. Uh, two more. Control your gift and use it in love. Control your gift and use it in love. And then finally, be orderly and reverent at church as a church. And all of us can say amen to that. Amen. And with that, let me go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the treasure of your word. Thank you for preserving it, Lord, over the centuries so faithfully with sacrificial saints with the amazing power of your Holy Spirit who guided and superintended that process. And now we have it. We can read it and understand it, trust it, and live by it. God, help us to that end, especially in light of what we just studied in 1 Corinthians 14. God, we want to do all things in a way that honors you, and yet we are so weak, so feeble, so self-centered by nature. God, we desperately need your help, and we know that that it is your desire to help us, and you will, through other believers, through the truth of your word, and through your indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you. We commit this day to you. We pray that you're glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.